I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm honored to welcome to our daily podcast edition of the program, Don Moynihan. He is professor, the inaugural McCourt Chair at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University. Uh, he is, along with several other Twitter users, continuing uh, a suit against the Trump administration. The administration and real Donald Trump's Twitter handle, Unblock, um, his access to the feed uh, that is the president of the United States Twitter account. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. A question of um, the government's prerogative uh, to ban members of the citizenry um, and refuse them access to their accounts, uh, that seemed to be a rather clear-cut decision by the lower court, which said that Donald Trump cannot block users uh, like yourself. And so can you get us up to date on what happened since the court, the lower court ruled that he needed to unblock um, the folks who were blocked on Twitter? Yeah, there was an initial lawsuit where a number of people who had been blocked on Twitter had made their case um, and had won uh, in lower federal courts. Uh, the Trump uh, administration and the Department of Justice has continued to appeal that case. But the ruling of that stands is that uh, Donald Trump can't block people because of their political viewpoint. And so the president was forced to unblock individual um, Twitter users who had been blocked uh, and this uh, case that I'm involved in is sort of a sequel to that, uh, where the Knight Institute had petitioned the Department of Justice to uh, have the president unblock us. And essentially, the Department of Justice and the president said, uh, unless you can show us which specific tweet got you blocked, or if you were blocked before uh, he became president, then we are going to continue to block you. Um, and that seems very much to be at odds with the spirit of the initial ruling, as well as with multiple other court rulings with different politicians that have held that, that um, Twitter online space is really a public space when it comes to the use of their duties. And so they're unable to uh, remove us from, from that space simply because they disagree with our views. So the president is now challenging the lower court ruling and trying to bring this to potentially the Supreme Court? Yep. He's um, hoping that the Supreme Court will uh, say he he, uh, has the right to block people. Um, It doesn't seem like a very strong claim based on all of the other case law around it. Um, It is a newer area of law, and I'm not a lawyer, but there does seem to be fairly significant consistency that if elected officials are using their account for professional purposes. Uh, They can't exclude people from that account. Uh, So it doesn't seem like it's a lawsuit that has a good prospect of winning. On the other hand, the president certainly likes to appeal and appeal uh, and appeal and delay um, the end of any uh, um, uh, judicial outcome in, in this and other cases as well. So I expect this case is not going to be different. Is it clear yet that the Supreme Court will take it up? 
Um, I do not believe there's been any indication that they will take it up at this point. And if they fail to, then the lower court ruling will stand and, and he'll have to unblock you. The lower court ruling will stand, I believe, but it's not clear that he will unblock us. Um, I mean, that the, the decision of the lower court ruling seemed clear enough such that if, if uh, people like myself uh, sought to be unblocked, um, it seemed pretty straightforward that we have a right to be unblocked, but uh, the president has been resisting that. And so you can't really take it for granted that he'll actually follow uh, the, the lower court ruling or that his Department of Justice won't come up with this very narrow legal interpretation of what the court said. Let me ask you uh, more broadly about the public policy failure in response to the COVID pandemic. Um, you teach at a school public policy uh, we are in the midst of, you know, of course, uh, an unprecedented pandemic that has uh, killed over 200,000 Americans. And it still seems that our CDC in the United States can't get the facts straight and out to the American people without political interference. Um, many months and many souls are gone um, later. The most recent instance of this, Professor, was the CDC just recently produced information and evidence that there is airborne transmission and detailed that on the website only to say that they accidentally published that, mm -hmm. and that's not correct. I mean, in studying public policy, can you imagine any response to a pandemic that is worse than what the American response has been? It's certainly hard to find other examples. Um, you could possibly look at Brazil uh, as another example where, where the government has been really reluctant to embrace the science and where the leader has sent these very mixed signals about what are the appropriate health and safety precautions. But, but look, like, there's, a, there's a pretty simple playbook when you face this sort of crisis. Uh, a leader communicates clearly relies on scientific expertise and is consistent over time. And we just haven't seen that with this crisis. Um, what we're seeing with some of the, the scientific agencies like FDA, like the CDC, um, these are agencies that we normally expect politicians to defer to the experts with. Um, so we normally expect they get a little bit more autonomy than other agencies because the politicians are not scientists. Instead, what we're seeing, and it's leaking out bit by bit, but we're seeing a lot of evidence of political appointees coming on board, second-guessing the decisions of the experts, editing um, scientific reports in some cases, pulling information that was supposed to be published. So, for example, CDC guidelines about getting families back to school and what that would take. And it really does point to the politicization of scientific agencies under the Trump administration. The repercussions of having a regime that is so deluded um, about the science, um, we like to think of climate change as a long-term environmental and geopolitical challenge. And Maybe the American people are aware now of the importance um, 
you know, of having public policy that's not done by tweet <laughs> and that, you know, is not the equivalent of my dog ate my homework. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's sort of where we are when it comes to public policy right now in this country. Yeah, if you study public policy, there's, uh, uh, it's a difficult topic to talk about because we are concerned very much about the long-run erosion of administrative capacity and expertise in government. And it's hard to measure the, the day-to-day effect of that in practice. So there's a risk that you end up sounding like the boy who cried wolf. You sort of say, well, this is really bad and we should do something about it. But people look outside and, you know, it's much like the day before. I think with COVID, it has changed that narrative quite a bit so that we've seen immediate and firsthand, boy, there are real costs to not having a competent functioning government with these sorts of crises. Uh, With climate change, I think it's going to take a little bit more time, but those costs are really starting to become apparent when you look at things like wildfires out west or the number of hurricanes down on the Gulf Coast. Uh, It's getting harder and harder to deny the science on that. Um, But you you would hope some of that translates into political discussion during the campaign that that we're heading into now. What do you find to be most applicable in what you teach um, to how a new administration can basically enact sweeping change um, that, that is going to be a more informed, scientifically literate response. Um, what would you hope transpires over these next months um, that would be the foundation for a more effective policy approach towards the pandemic? That's a good question. So, so I teach a, a class in public management for students who might enter the bureaucracy. Um, And so one of the core issues we talk about is what is the balance between fact and values? So when you're an elected official or if you're a political appointee, you're primarily in a position where you're articulating political values that your supporters care about. Um, If you are a career executive or, or someone who's a scientist working in the federal government, it's your job to provide facts. Um, and, and together, those two things are supposed to be the basis of our governing, that you have elected officials who take the values, but also look at the facts and then make informed decisions based on that. And you have a populace that, that really responds to those decisions, uh, recognizing that facts exist. Um, so we reiterate those, the, that division between facts and values. Um, it's harder to... Uh, maintain faith in that division when there's a denial on the part of elected officials that that facts exist or a muddying of the water about what is real and what is not real, about what is evidence and what is fake news. Um, And that that makes it much harder. But we still think it's important to teach our students that if you are going to go into public service, there is such a thing as reality, there is such a thing as science, there is such a thing as evidence – and that even if you're in a position such as CDC scientists are today, you have an obligation to speak truth to power. So it's also about the ethics of public service as well as the, the, the evidence and the facts behind it. The facts are most important. And you know, do you think that there's such a breakdown of fact that 
the result of Donald Trump's presidency is not just going to be a breakdown of fact in the executive branch, but what has been the complicity with his enablers in the Senate who've denied the realities of the pandemic, uh, but also the judiciary, which is, of course, a huge area of contention now with Justice Ginsburg's death and the effort to replace her with an anti-democratic, undemocratic process and nominee. Um, how concerned are you about the anti-fact, anti-truth movement uh, becoming something that is absorbed by the judiciary as much as the executive and the legislative branch? Uh, I'm, I'm quite concerned uh, because you know, anyone who makes it to a judicial position, um, especially a Supreme Court position, they're good at legal reasoning. They're, they're good at developing uh, a persuasive legal basis for their approach to the world that doesn't necessarily mean they're good at evaluating science and, and judging um, what is facts and what, what, what are opinion. Um, and I'll give you a specific example since you raised um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So she wrote, for example, about the role of facts and evidence when it comes to making judgments about abortion cases. Um, and in particular, there's been this stream of cases where states have tried to make it harder to get access to abortion on the grounds that uh, it's actually protecting the health of the mother. Um, and there's really no empirical evidence to support that claim. And so in, in, in the 2016, in the majority, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg pointed that out alongside Stephen Breyer and basically said, look, if we are judges who are going to make these decisions, we have to look at the facts. We have to look at the evidence. We can't just say, well, the state of Texas and its legislators tells us that this, these restrictive abortion laws help women's health. We really need to talk to experts and see what the evidence is. Uh, I think if you see a more conservative push on the court, there will be policy areas like abortion where they will drop that standard and they will instead say, we simply defer to whatever it is that the, the state of Texas or the state of Louisiana tells us are the facts of the case, and we're not going to judge for ourselves. Ultimately, truth and reconciliation is the needed antidote or the needed policy in the wake of the Trump presidency. How do you perceive the truth and the reconciliation, and, and how do you visualize it? Well, it's... <laughs> It's a big question. I think some of that is going to work through the, the legal process and um, attention to what sort of uh, legal liabilities the president has opened for himself over the last four years. Uh, I think some of it will occur through oversight hearings on Congress uh, on its watch as it, it tries to figure out in different policy areas what happened. Um, I think there are some policy areas and possibly government-wide, you need something like a, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission or some sort of what, what used to be a blue, uh, blue ribbon commission where you get outside experts to deliver some sort of a report about what happened. And so, we, you know, we, we did something like that after Hurricane Katrina, after 9-11, uh, some of those reports maybe have lost public trust, but there are whole areas of government where we really have a very dim view of what's happening inside right now. 
Um, so immigration is an example where, for example, members of Congress cannot get inside some facilities. So our traditional mechanisms of oversight have really broken down. Uh, and I, I think it's in those areas in particular uh, where perhaps you have these sort of young, very ideological appointees who are pushing um, very extreme views. There needs to be uh, some formal recognition that what's happened has been extraordinary, needs to be documented, and there needs to be some recognition to stop that from happening again. Final question, Professor. The Watergate era reforms were not enough to prevent the manifest abuses of power that we've seen these past four years. Uh, What, in your mind, would be adequate constitutional or other legislative reform that would stand the test of time in the way that obviously the post-Watergate reforms did not? I think you have to think really big about institutional level reforms. Um, So you look at something like the Watergate reforms, which includes things like inspectors general um, as a mechanism to provide oversight within the executive branch. I think on some level, the inspectors general have worked quite well. They, they have shown the light on what's gone wrong in government. The failure has been uh, with Congress failing to act on those reports, and most spectac- spectacularly with um, the impeachment process where there was evidence of wrongdoing, and ultimately the Senate decided it didn't really want to see a whole lot of evidence it had made up its mind and it wasn't going to move ahead with, with impeachment. Um, so I think that those reforms that you mentioned post-Watergate depended upon one thing, which was a Congress that was willing to check the president. Uh, and it's not clear in our very polarized times that we still have that, um, that we, it feels like we do not have Uh, the equivalent of the senior members of the Republican Party who went from Congress to Nixon in the 70s and said, look, it's it's time to resign. Um, Right, exactly. Yeah, I I describe this, and I don't know why others do not, as the evisceration of the Senate under Mitch McConnell. He thinks that he's powerful, but he's powerful in a way that no one before him was and he's completely remade the Senate in the face of the United States Supreme Court and the executive branch. It is, it is in effect, been cannibalized by other branches. So, you know, if he wants to be remembered as Senator Mitch McConnell, he's not going to be remembered as a man of the Senate. He's going to be remembered as a, a cannibal uh, who basically minimized the Senate into obscurity and irrelevance as a co-equal branch. Yeah, you, you see, you look at McConnell's actual legislative record, and it, it's pretty thin. This is not someone who got to the leadership of the Senate by, by being someone who was able to create great public policy, uh, instead, his achievements have been partly around thwarting uh, a Democratic president, uh, providing a lot of cover for a Republican president, and really putting his fate in control via the judicial branch as, as his lasting effect on government. 
Um, so constraining the administrative state by appointing these very conservative justices. Um, that, that is a legacy. It, it's an important legacy, but it's not one that's based on constructing great public policy. It's not one that's at all in line with the forebearers of the institution who, whose legacy was their own or that of the institution. And I think this is much more of a legacy for Donald Trump and for the Supreme Court than it ever would be a legacy for the Senate or for a senator. Uh, Don Moynihan of Georgetown University, thanks so much for your insight today. Thank you so much.